church. How's everyone doing this evening? Let's get some of that uh, Melissa hype that she put. How's everyone doing this evening? There we go. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to um, launch a new series tonight, which we're entitling Woven Stories. And this is going to be a series that's going to take place over the next two months. We're going to be looking at our stories and how they are intertwined with the stories of others. How stories between uh, relationships, friendships, between marriages, with your kids, with neighbors, with coworkers, really what all of these relationships are, they are stories woven together. Because our stories interact with the stories of others, and in particular, they also interact with the story that God is writing. And one of the things that I'm celebrating uh, this evening, and ha- I have been this whole week, is that on Easter Sunday, not only here at Crossbridge Brickle, but around the entire city of Miami, there are churches that had record attendance. More people than they've ever had ever in the history of their existence. Many of them, if it wasn't the biggest ever, it was the biggest in five, six, seven years. And I heard from so many of my friends that are pastoring different churches here in Miami, the way that God is moving in their midst, people coming to faith, people being baptized, people finding healing. God is moving in our city, friends. And we get to be a part of that. He's moving in this church. He's moving in a mighty way. And one of the things that's so important for us to understand is, one, that God is moving. He's writing a fresh and a new story for the city of Miami. He's using the church, and he's using your story. He's using your story in that. And so here's one of the things that's so vital, and it's the beginning of this series. It's episode one of Woven Stories, and that is this. You must know your story. You have to know yourself. You see, it's one thing to learn about other people's stories. It's one thing to recognize God is writing a story and read the story of God, but you have to know your story. Really know yourself for who you are, what you've been through, what you face, what you struggle with, your successes, your failures, your strengths, your deficiencies. You have to know your story. You have to engage that. It was St. Teresa of Avila who said that Most spiritual problems in the church and in an individual's life can be attributed to their lack of knowledge of self. By not knowing yourself, you struggle to know God, you struggle to know others, and you struggle in all types of ways, emotional, mental, and as St. Teresa said, spiritually. Spiritual problems arise when you don't know yourself. And so over the next two months, we're going to be looking at different kind of dynamics and different kind of relationships and how we engage the stories of others. And it's going to be an exciting series. I can't wait. But we're going to start tonight with the foundation, with the basis, and that is knowing yourself. You have to know yourself in order to know anyone else, including God himself. And so this evening, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. And I realize now I did not introduce myself if I have not met you yet. My name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. And I'm excited to open God's word with you. Isaiah chapter 6, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have your Bible, download the Crossbridge Brickle app. You can go to Android or your iPhone store and download it. There's notes there. I put a whole bunch of notes. There's a lot of content tonight that you're going to want to chew on and wrestle with this week. And I believe it'll be formative in illuminating your story to you. And we'll also have the text on the screen behind. So Isaiah chapter 6, it's one of the 
books in the Old Testament, and Isaiah was a prophet. And I want to kind of bring you into this story before we dive right in. So Isaiah was a prophet around 700 years roughly before Jesus was born. He was called by God to preach to God's people about the need for them to trust in God alone. To not fall prey to the influence and to the temptation of foreign powers and foreign gods. False gods. You see, Israel or the chosen people of God were in a very difficult situation and facing a lot of adversity when Isaiah was called to be a prophet. They were divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which took the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which took the name Judah. They were divided, but they were still united because they were God's people. They were being called to worship God, and Isaiah is primarily preaching to those in Judah, the southern kingdom, but his message is going out to all of God's people to trust God, to find faith in God, to hold fast to God, to not fall prey to foreign powers and false gods. This was like the very first of denominations, friends. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is is ministering and he's preaching and he's prophesying. In this time, it's super critical for the life of God's people. And his story was a difficult one. If you look at Isaiah's story, you can tell that it's full of struggle. It's full of pain. He's often misunderstood. He's misinterpreted. He's slandered. He's overlooked. He's cast aside. He had a lot of difficulty and frustration in his life and in his ministry. And yet he was called to faithfully follow God where he would call him to preach what God told him to preach. The very beginning of the book of Isaiah, as we're going to be in chapter 6 tonight, we see Isaiah have this experience that is formative for the rest of his ministry and the rest, the rest of his life. It changes him to the core. He has a vision of God. He comes into this experience where he sees God in a way that he's never seen him before. And this takes place right after the king of Judah, King Uzziah, dies. And so everything is up in the air. What's going to happen to Judah? What's going to happen to God's people? How is God going to use Isaiah? And God gives Isaiah a vision of the throne room of God. So we step into the story there in chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Here's what God's word says to us tonight. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth 
and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're brought into this vision that Isaiah has. I want you to imagine what he's describing. He begins to see this throne room. And he sees the Lord, God himself, sitting on a throne high and lifted up. I'm imagining like stairs with a throne. And God is on top of the throne and his robe is filling the temple. It's covering every crack and crevice of the temple. And as he gazes upon this throne and God in his glory and the train of his robe filling the room, he sees these seraphim, these angelic type of creatures that he describes in a human, a human way with hands and feet, but with interesting behavior or posture. They have six wings, and two of the wings are covering their face. Two wings are covering their feet, and then two wings are flapping as they're fluttering above the Lord who's on the throne. As that is all taking place, the seraphim call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now this is the first time in scripture that holy, holy, holy is commanded or is praised. You see these angels, these seraphim, they're called the fiery ones. Imagine they're on fire and there's these wings and they're covered up and they're praising God but their posture is one of humility. They're covering their face and their feet, but they're praising God, holy, holy, holy. And that's important because in the Hebrew language, which the Old Testament was originally written in, if you were to say something was very good, you would say good, good. If you were to say something is big, you would say it was big, big. You would emphasize two times to give an exclamation to something. And so here, the seraphim are calling out God's holiness, his nature, that he's set apart, that he's perfectly good. Three times, he's holy, he's holy, holy. And when this happens, smoke begins to fill the room. And then Isaiah responds. You see, this had to have been so difficult for Isaiah to convey. He's conveying a vision that is almost indescribable, but it profoundly impacted him. Have you ever woken up in the morning from a dream and it was so vivid in your mind? You you felt some certain way. You can describe it. You knew it was wild and it made no sense, but it made complete sense to you in the moment. And then you tell someone, I just had the most amazing dream. They're like, tell me about it. And you're like, I... I don't, and you start to talk, you start to share, and you're like, that's not it. I I don't know how to communicate what was happening. I just had one of these dreams this morning, and I I said that my dream was about basketball, but it was so much more than basketball. There were so many things happening. I didn't know how to communicate anything else. Imagine Isaiah. He has a vision of God, and he's trying to describe this experience of seeing God on the throne, the robe filling the room and these seraphim, these fiery angels, and they're holy, 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 and then smoke comes out. It's almost indescribable. It's so hard for him to convey what he saw. But what he wants you to see is how it affected him when he saw God. When he heard the seraphim call out, holy, 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 
is the Lord of hosts. His response, you would expect to be, wow, this is amazing, God. Thank you for this vision. I mean, this is unbelievable. I've never seen something. I don't even know what to say. This is unbelievable. No, his response is, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a land of unclean lips. For I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Notice this. This is such an interesting response. He sees the king. He sees the Lord on his throne. He hears the praise of God. And his response is, I'm a mess. I don't feel like I should be here. I'm lost. I don't know what's happening. In fact, I know that I have unclean lips. And I'm feeling all types of guilt and difficulty with that right now. Remember, Isaiah is a prophet. He uses his mouth for his work. He's a strong communicator. And now he realizes that he has been using that gift, his words, in ways that were harmful, polluted, unclean, dirty. His response is like, I'm lost, I'm unclean, I'm a mess. Isn't that interesting? How it profoundly affects him when he comes before the presence and the person of God. He feels inadequate, he feels a mess, he sees all of his messed up behavior, his speech, he feels polluted, feels sinful. So we don't like to talk about this in church very often, but we need to talk about it. And that's this, that there is a terror to God's holiness, a terror, a trembling, a response like Isaiah, like woe is me. Not wow, woe, shame. Who am I? There's a terror to God's holiness because God is perfectly good and we cannot imagine that. We cannot imagine what it is like to, to look at a perfectly good being who has created us and who has saved us and who is the king of kings. We cannot imagine to behold perfect goodness when we are anything but good. There's a terror to it. It's so completely foreign to us. I want you to picture in your mind a hero that you have. Maybe it's a celebrity, someone in entertainment. Maybe it's a sports star. Maybe it's someone in, in the business arena that you're in that has succeeded and has done much. Oftentimes our heroes are people that we look to and we say, I, I want to be that person. I wish I had that life. I wish I had that success. I wish I had that recognition. Now imagine you got invited to have a 15-minute conversation with your hero. You got to go backstage before they performed in the locker room, in a boardroom. You got to sit down and ask anything you want. Just have a conversation with your hero for 15 minutes. When you walk in the room, how are you gonna feel immediately? A little uncomfortable, right? Like you're before someone that you respect and honor and value. You're gonna be excited, but you're gonna be a little bit nervous. You may, as you talk, feel inadequate. You may feel like, I, I could never imagine achieving this. I wish I could. Now, I want you, I know we can't think like this, but I want you to take that example and place it now on coming before God. How would you feel 
coming before a perfectly good, perfectly holy, totally transcendent but eminent other. I think we'd feel a lot like Isaiah. I don't think I should be here. I'm lost. I thought I had it together. I don't have it together. I'm unclean. I see all the issues that are with me now. And yet, we're called to view God, to see God in his holiness, and to worship him like the seraphim, like the angels, to worship God in his holiness. That's what we're called to do. You see, Psalm 96 says this. It says that we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Here's what the psalmist is saying, which is what Isaiah is experiencing. You're to come before God and to see his holiness, to see his perfect goodness, his magnificent, bright, beautiful holiness. He is not like you, and that is why he's deserving of your worship. That's why we come to him with a posture of humility, because he is holy, and we're to see the splendor of his holiness. But when we come before the holiness of God, it should cause us a little bit to tremble. Because God is not like us. He is far greater than we are, than we could ever imagine. And this is good, friends. It feels a little bit off-putting, but it is good to see God's magnificent, bright, beautiful holiness, to worship God in the splendor of his holiness, his perfect goodness, and tremble a little bit. Why? Because it reveals who you are. See, what happens to Isaiah when he has this vision of God is that he sees himself for who he is. He sees his story rightly. His response is, I'm lost. I'm a mess. I don't have it all together. I was probably telling people how great of a communicator I I am, but I actually know now I have unclean lips. He sees his deficiencies. He sees his story honestly. He sees himself truly. It's John Calvin, the reformer, one of the great men of faith, who said this, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Hold on to that. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And that makes sense, too, because we're commanded to love our neighbor, how? As ourself. If you can't love yourself and know yourself, how can you love your neighbor? If you don't know yourself, how can you know God? You see, this is the importance of knowing your story and knowing yourself. To the degree that you know yourself is to the degree that you can know God. That's what Calvin is saying. If you want to know God, you need to know yourself. And here's how it works. When you begin to look into yourself and to know your story, you'll begin to see God in a more deep and profound way. And when you come to see God and worship God, you'll begin to see yourself more rightly. You'll see yourself for who you are, just like Isaiah saw. And that means when you come to worship God, whether when it's times of personal worship at home, on the way to the office, or at the beach on the weekend, when you come before God's word and prayer and you come to worship him personally or publicly as we do on Sunday night, 
You should come open and expectant for God to reveal yourself to yourself. For God to reveal yourself to yourself. To be okay with seeing that you don't have it all together. You're not as good as you project on social media. You're not as successful as you tell people. You have more insecurities than you want anyone to know. You have deep wounds that you hide and struggle with to come before God and say, God, I want you to reveal myself to myself because I want to know you more and I know I need to know myself more. You see, if you cannot see yourself as unholy, then you cannot appreciate nor worship God who is holy. If you cannot see yourself as unholy, then how can you appreciate or worship God in the splendor of his holiness? You see, God wants you and me to know ourselves truly so that we can know him more fully. You see that? God wants you to know yourself truly for who you are so that you might know him more fully. Here's the ramifications of not knowing yourself not really knowing your story and doing that hard work of seeing who you really are and being honest with yourself about yourself. The first one is that you'll have a shallow knowledge of God. That's what I've been discussing. You'll have a shallow knowledge of God and you'll have shallow worship. You can't know God more fully if you don't know yourself truly. I want you to consider people that you maybe have met over time. Maybe this is where you're at now. People that have come to faith and they are, here's the church lingo, right? They're on fire for God. Which is like a hilarious statement. They're on fire for God. And what that really means is they are passionate about worship. They want to serve. They want to give. They're telling everybody about Jesus. They want people to come to their baptism. They're not ashamed at all. And you look at them and they're like, they, they just became a believer. And sometimes we look at them and we're like, what happened to me? <laughs> Why are people that come to faith often on fire for God, worshiping God, telling people about Jesus, they're passionate? It's because they realize in that moment, in that season, how much they have been delivered from. They know who they were, and now they know who God calls them to be and who they are in Christ, and they can't believe it. They know themselves, and so they now know God more fully. You know who the most apathetic people that worship God? The most apathetic worshipers of God are those who have been desensitized to God's goodness because they were raised in the church, they're culturally Christian, or they see God as good, and if you say to them, God is good, they'll say, all the time, But they have found other things in their life that are also good. And they're focused on those other good things, and God has become a religious ritual for them. Apathetic. They have failed to see themselves for who they really are and what God's goodness and holiness calls them to and invites them to see about who He is. They failed to see themselves, they failed to recognize their. Story, a shallow knowledge of God. Have you heard this before? Have you heard people say this about Christianity? Christianity 
is a religion for broken people who need a crutch. Have you ever heard that? Like Christianity is a crutch. Christianity is just for people that can't handle themselves, they can't handle their life, they have a lot of things going on, they've had some trauma, they have some issues. So they go to religion, they go to Jesus and church for a crutch because it helps them. Very condescending way to talk about Christianity. That's not true. Let me tell you what Christianity is that people fail to realize that have never experienced the holiness of God. Christianity is the faith that calls you to see your own brokenness and causes you to realize you've been leaning on other things as a crutch. Christianity calls you to see your own brokenness and to say, I have been using work, romance, friendships, reputation. I've been using all of these things as a crutch. I need Jesus. That's really what Christianity calls you to. It calls you to see yourself for who you really are and then see God for who he really is. But if you don't know yourself, you'll have a shallow knowledge of God. The second ramification of not knowing yourself is that you'll have a shallow knowledge of others. You'll have a shallow knowledge of others. I want you to consider right now all of the different movements that have been rising up in our culture and our society over the past several years. Political movements, justice movements, movements I call of exposure where things have been hidden away in the dark and light is brought to bring healing and justice. Movements that are spiritual movements. There's been all types of movements and there'll continue to be movements that are taking place in our society and are rising up and they're going viral and people are attaching themselves to them. But here's what I have found, and maybe you see this too. If you think about any of these different movements that are flooding your mind right now, you know that people either wholeheartedly agree with them, support them, and are behind them, or they are wholeheartedly in opposition to them. We live in incredibly polarizing times. Incredibly polarizing times. And what we've lost is empathy. We have no ability to see the stories of others to step into the stories of others, to feel the pain of others, to engage with others. We don't know ourselves, and so how can we know others? I think that's why we lack empathy, because we're a society that doesn't really know ourselves. We know that America is a highly individualistic, consumeristic culture. We're very me-centered. We have begun to you know, break down the very basics of truth. Now, truth is relative for many people, and so it's not the truth, it's my truth. We have not only accepted, but we get excited as a society about exposing the flaws and the faults of others, canceling them, right? Polarizing times, difficult times. Why is this happening? Because we don't know ourselves. We don't see ourselves for who we really are. We're a culture in search of guilt, but not our own guilt, the guilt of others. We don't want to look at ourselves. We don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to have a response like Isaiah. We don't want to say, woe is me. I'm lost. Imagine putting that on your Instagram. Woe is me. I am lost and unclean. People are going to be like, are you okay? We don't want to have that kind of response. We don't really know ourselves. 
So the difficulty is we don't know other people. See, all of us here, we're the hero of our own story. We're writing a story. But we don't really know ourselves. And so what happens is we justify our problems. We blame problems on others. We spin narratives because we don't want to know ourselves. We don't want to face the truth of who we are. We'd rather change it. That's causing us to have a shallow knowledge of others. I want you to listen to Jesus' words and imagine if we as a society followed these words. And I'm not going to pretend like we also in this room don't struggle with the very same thing, okay? We do. I do. Here's what Jesus says. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother or sister's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say that your brother or sister, how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. What timely words from Jesus. What is he saying? Before you want to address anything in anyone else or in anything else, you need to know yourself rightly. You need to see the log in your eye because if you don't know yourself, you don't see yourself, you don't see what's hampering you and what's affecting you, then that's all you see and you're going to cast it on other people. The failure to understand yourself causes a failure to understand others. And so if you don't know yourself, it's not only that you'll have a shallow knowledge of God, it's that you'll also have a shallow knowledge of other people. Cause you to lack empathy, create division. You need to know your story. Your brokenness, your weakness, your deficiencies, your strengths, your successes. You need to know your story. And I want to say this. To really look at yourself honestly and to really look at your story takes bravery. It's not easy. It's not easy. I'm not up here saying like, oh, it's so easy to be honest with yourself about yourself. It's not. It's difficult. But the best way to know yourself more truly is to seek to know God more fully. There's an interconnected nature between knowing yourself and knowing God. Knowing God and knowing yourself. That's exactly what happens with Isaiah. He sees the holiness of God. He sees the praise of God in his holiness. And the response is that he sees himself for who he really is. He sees his story. He sees his difficulty. He sees the truth. What did Jesus say? Know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Now put that on yourself. If you know the truth about yourself, the truth will what? Set you free. If you know yourself truly, You'll be set free. But it takes bravery. It's not easy. It's hard to confront the truth. Sometimes we'd rather live in an adjusted truth about who we are, but God wants you to know know the truth of who you are and who he is. And he wants not only to invite you to that brave step of knowing yourself. You see, coming to church takes bravery. Because you're going to be confronted with God who wants you to see yourself for who you really are. 
and to see him for who he really is. But when God enlightens you to the truth of who you are, he wants to heal your hurt. He wants to transform your hurt. Isaiah is in this incredibly fragile place. His response in this vision is, woe is me, I'm full of sorrow, I am lost, I feel inadequate, I have unclean lips, I haven't used my life well, I've said things I shouldn't say, I've seen the king, he's very fragile. What happens next? Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched it to my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Remember what Isaiah said was unclean? His lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah in this incredibly fragile place, coming before the holiness of God, seeing his story, seeing himself for who he is. God comes to him and he says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I know you feel full of sorrow. I know you feel a mess. I know you feel lost. I know you feel guilty over what you have been saying the way that you've used a talent or a gift that you have, I want you to know that you're forgiven. Your guilt's gone. Your sin has been paid for. See, Isaiah leaves this vision with a greater sense not only of who he is, but who God is. He's broken, but God puts him back together. He's a mess, but God has forgiven him. He struggles with guilt, but God has taken that away. He's sinful, but his sin has been paid for. He sees God for who he really is. Isaiah is renewed and he is remade because he has experience in this place of fragility. When he really sees himself for who he is, he has experienced not the condescension or the judgment of God, but the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the healing of God. In fact, God touches the very place that he identifies as one of his key sins, his lips. You see, what God does when you come before him honestly with who you are and you present your story and yourself before him and you're like, God, I'm a mess, I'm lost, I'm broken, I have unclean lips, I have this problem in my life, I've done this. God comes to you and he says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for, and he speaks to the very specific things that have happened in your story and in your life, and he says, that has been healed. It's been healed. You see, and that happens through this burning coal that touches his lips. Through that one touch, the flame of God heals Isaiah, remakes him and renews him. He comes out of that vision and he starts to tell people about what he's experienced, but they can't fully understand it. But Isaiah knows deeply what he's experienced and how it's changed him. See, that's the power of fire, the power of the fire of God. 
And here's what I think. I think a lot of people, they come to interact with Christianity or they're opposed to Christianity. They don't want to go to church. They're afraid of really engaging God because they know themselves enough to know that they don't measure up to whatever God's standard is. They've heard enough and they know that God, if God is real, he's good and they know they're not. And so they feel like they're not adequate. They're lost. Too much guilt, too much sorrow. I think many people are disinterested and disengaged from Christianity because of that. They feel like if God is a flame, the flame of God, that if they get too close, it's going to start to burn. And especially if they linger, it's going to burn them. That fire can burn and God's fire will burn and scald them. I've had so many of my friends that aren't believers come to, come to church here. And I've had at least five say this to me. If I come, will I light on fire? They said that. And, it's, and they're being funny, but they're also being serious. Like, is God going to burn me? Am I going to feel an immense amount of guilt and shame? I don't want that. Because fire has the ability to burn and scald. But that's not what the fire of God does when you come before him. I want to show you this as an example. So God, this could work. So many of us interact with God as a flame, and we maybe have grown up in church, and we felt like that. That if you get too close to God, if you stay too close, if you get too involved, if you, have, if you really believe that he's going to burn you, he's going to scald you, he's going to make you see yourself for who you are, and you're going to feel guilt, you're going to feel shame, but that's not at all what happens. That's not at all who God is. His flame doesn't burn, it doesn't scald, it actually heals and it warms. And so if you want to consider God as a flame, when you come before God and you encounter his holiness and you see him for who he is, it's very interesting, something very different happens. You come before God in his holiness. Hold on. Doesn't burn at all. <laughs> hey, I did check where the fire extinguisher was right before this happened. Yeah, Jocelyn told me. I told her I was going to light my hand on fire. She goes, there's the fire extinguisher. But I wanted to show you that. Here's why. I just lit my hand on fire and it didn't burn at all. Because I Googled fire on hand magic trick. <laughs> That's what I Googled. But here's what I want to show you. When I did that, you know because of my reaction that it didn't burn me. It warmed me. When you encounter God, the fire of God, the holiness of God, and he touches you in the very specific places of your life where you're wounded, where you've sinned, where you've struggled. What happens is you have this experience with the presence of God and the forgiveness of God and the goodness of God. And it warms you. But your story still remains. 
Your story is still here. And everyone else that sees your story doesn't see anything different. But you experience something that you can't explain. A warming, a healing, a fire that is unlike any other fire that burns and scalds because it doesn't burn, it doesn't scald. It heals, it renews, it lights you up in a way that is so different. Isaiah, when he has this vision of God and he sees the goodness of God, he comes out of that completely different. He says, God, send me wherever I'll go wherever. Because he's experienced the fire of God, which is powerful to transform and to change your life. And I want you to hear this. You do not need a vision of God like Isaiah has. All you need to look to is the cross. The cross where Jesus was burned so that you might be healed. The cross where we are undone, but we are remade. You see, when we stand before the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, where he says, I am going to the cross to die for your sin and your shame and your guilt so that it will be wiped away, it will be atoned for, it will be purchased on my behalf, paid for, done. When you look at the cross, there's a little bit of a tremble when you see the holiness of Jesus because you know it was your sin that put him there. It was my sin that put him there. But you worship God in the splendor of his holiness because you are forgiven because of Jesus' goodness. You don't have to present to God, hey, God, here's all the good things I've done. Am I accepted? No, 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 God. Woe is me, I'm a mess, I'm lost, I feel inadequate. However, when I experience the warmth of the cross, the healing nature of the cross, the forgiveness of the cross, the grace of the cross, I have an experience that transforms my story. Not everyone else sees what's happened, but I have felt the flame of God and my life is never the same. This is what happens when you see God for who he is and what he's done for you on the cross. You can know yourself honestly and not be afraid that in that place of fragility that God will harm you. He never will. He will heal you. So will you seek to know God more fully by knowing yourself more truly? I pray that we start there on this journey together. Amen? Will you pray with me?